0: I have a lot of information it is now 5 after 7 after 11 so about 7 minutes after 2 ah <laughs> uh, no i will try not to speak fast but i'll try to to cover um most if not all of the material i have it's, this is an amazing chapter because Uh, We want to talk about the danger of judging others. Let's have a confession right up front. How many here have ever judged somebody? Oh, most of us. Um, Actually, all of us. We've all been there, right? And I'm not saying that you're standing behind in a courtroom at the judge's bench, but um, uh, we've all been there, and uh, maybe we were even there this last week or on our way to church, uh, so I want to talk to you about the danger of judging others. People try to crowd God out of their lives. Though they don't actually wish to completely eliminate him, there are very few people who would probably be willing to shake their fist into the heavens and say, there is no God, or we don't want you, God. Usually what people do instead is they put God way down on the list. Until after their second heart attack, then we want to get ready for God. But when man is without restraint of love for God or fear of God, then he goes to the limit in his reactions. And the awful list we have at the close of chapter 1 that Pastor Roger talked about last week is the record of the possibilities of evil that lie hidden in every human heart. And these are now becoming more and more visible, I think, in our nation as we gradually drift from our moorings and we use up the capital of our forefathers' spiritual heritage. So we see ourselves drifting farther and farther and farther away. Something that would have been unheard of years and years ago is the parade taking place in our city. And the open declaration of certain things that you... Not just that, but so many other things that we see in our society. Well, chapter 2 presents another reason why men and women and young people, why people do not readily find God today. And Paul points it out right at the very beginning of chapter 2. And that is our tendency to point the finger at someone else. The amazing ability to find someone whom we consider worse than we are and then to ask God to concentrate on them and leave us alone. It's like, how many have ever been caught for speeding? Anybody? And maybe, as you see the Christmas lights light up behind you and the officer comes to the window, you're thinking, why don't you spend your time getting the real criminals? It's so easy to point the finger when we can think of somebody maybe doing something far worse than us or involved in something far worse than we are. In Romans chapter 1, Paul introduces the first of three different types of people who need forgiveness. And you'll find this about halfway through in the outline, but uh, they need to be saved. This was the rebellious person. People who rebel against God outwardly and they reject God and they repress the truth. They reject truth. They replace the truth. And intellectually, they rebel against God. If anybody needs an outline, just indicate, and Freddie's got some there in the, in the middle of the aisle. There. The rebellious person. Paul says they were guilty of two kinds of sins, godlessness and wickedness, which means they living without rules. The rebellious person lives without rules. And then in the first part of chapter 2, he deals with this respectable person, the person who says, I'm a decent citizen, I'm law-abiding, I'm better than those people in chapter 1. So, in chapter two, Paul says there's this other group of people who are looking back at chapter one saying, Well, I'm better than those people. And chapter two people are quick to judge the sins of others who are more open and more gross. They're more blatant. This morning, I want us to look at what Jesus attacked more often, more severely, more directly than any other sin. It wasn't adultery, it wasn't taking drugs. It wasn't watching TV, but it was the sin of self-righteousness. I agree with Chuck Swindoll, who calls this the deadliest sin in the world. You can find it anywhere, whether you're rich or poor, educated, uneducated, Christian, non-Christian. You can find this attitude of judging others. Everybody is guilty of this sin. You can find it everywhere. It's one sin that we tend to make excuses for. I'm really not judging. I'm just a fruit inspector. Because we say, by their fruits, you'll know them, right? So, I'm just a fruit inspector. I'm really not judging. This sin, Paul talks about as being a major problem in human lives. We talked about how all of mankind is guilty before God... Last week, we looked at what's probably the more realistic picture of what sin does to people in the entire Bible. It was graphic, it was gruesome. In Roman culture, you could find every single vice. Likewise, in our culture, you can find every single vice. But Paul imagined people reading that and thinking, that's not me. I'm a decent law-abiding citizen. I'm a respectable person. If that's the way you feel, Romans chapter 2 is for you. The moral, self-righteous person is just as guilty as the immoral person. In fact, nobody is innocent. No one has the right to judge others. Your first blank. No one has the right to judge others. Romans chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 5. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same thing, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Key verse, really, to this section, kind of is that first verse and. Within that first verse is that word judgment. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment. The word judgment means evaluate. It doesn't mean evaluate, analyze, or discriminate, or be discerning. It literally means sentence, pass a verdict, to condemn. He's not talking here about having discernment. You who condemn other people, you who judge other people. Judging is the favorite pastime of all self-righteous. He says no one has the right. To judge other people. And then he says only God has the right to judge other people. So he begins by describing four characteristics of a self-righteous person. So we're going to have a quiz. We'll see how many of the four we have individually. And then at the end we're going to ask, how many have four? Are you going to raise your hand? No, no, we're not. Four characteristics of the self-righteous person. The person who says, I'm really not so bad. I'm okay. I'm not a gross sinner. I have a few faults and I have a few weaknesses, but I'm all right. He says these things about the self-righteous person. They accuse others and excuse themselves. They accuse others and excuse themselves. He said, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on somebody else. For whatever point you judge the others, you're condemning yourself. For you who pass judgment are doing the same thing. Isn't it typical with human nature to be unrealistic about ourselves? Everybody else is guilty, but we're innocent. It's everybody else's fault. That seems to be commonplace now. It's my parents' fault, it's the teacher's fault, it's the their fault, it's everybody else is at fault for the way I am. Everybody else is guilty, but we're innocent. The common word for that is hypocrisy, which means we're inconsistent and the worst kind of pride is religious pride i've got it together and you don't these people judge other people particularly people in chapter 1 who are really blowing it in an obvious way but to themselves they say i'm not so i'm not so bad as those ones at the end of chapter 1 you know the ones that you were so glad that pastor roger highlighted and yeah those are really nasty naughty people he says Well, let's not get into the category and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as they are. And so we excuse our own behavior. How do we excuse our sin? Well, we can excuse our sin by labeling our sin. We say, I don't gossip. I'm just sharing a concern. You heard that, right? Maybe from your own lips. I'm not critical. I'm discerning. I'm not lazy. I'm mellow. We relabel our sin. I'm not negative. I'm realistic. I'm not unreliable. I'm flexible. We take what we judge in other people, and when it comes to ourselves, we say it's not wrong. It's just our characteristic. It's just the way I am. How many respectable people do you know that do that? Well, that's just how God made me. Take me for how I am. So we label our own sin. Secondly, what we do is we conveniently forget our own sin. The person who thinks he has a clear conscience just has a poor memory. You can tweet that one. A lot of times, there's nothing in our life, but we may not have thought enough about it. Second verse, he says, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Another characteristic is, they measure other people by the wrong standard. So they excuse themselves and accuse others. And secondly, we... We, we measure other people by a wrong standard. We compare others to ourself. I'm the arbitrary standard. I'm better than... We contrast that with the way God judges because God judges based on truth. The problem is, every one of us, myself included, we're blind to the, tr- to the truth. We all have blind spots. How many agree you have a blind spot? It's like when you're driving the car, you know that, that column between the front windshield and the side windshield that creates a blind spot? We all have blind spots, things that we don't necessarily see in our own life. And I don't see my own weaknesses. That's why you're here, right? To point out my weaknesses, to help me, whatever. You don't see your own weaknesses. Many times we don't see where we're at fault, but we only see where other people are at fault. It's ironic that we tend to judge in other people what we dislike in ourselves, We don't like it in us, and we judge it in other people. If you have a problem with pride, you're going to be very quick to judge people who are full of pride. If you're very lazy, you're going to be very quick to judge people who are lazy. It's just our nature. When we start to judge things, we have the tendency to judge the things we dislike about ourselves the most. When you see someone violently reacting to a certain sin, it may be, I'm not saying always, it may be that they have a fear of it or they're guilty of it. We measure by the wrong standards and we tend to play God. And please, I'm not pointing at anybody. We're all in this rowboat together. We're, we all, it's a human nature tendency. There is good news coming. Don't worry. There is good news coming. Thirdly, they think that judging others puts them in a better position. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet you do the same... Do you not think that you'll escape God's judgment? We who judge other people, do we think that's going to win points with God? Do you think that's going to make it less serious for us? That by judging others, we'll escape judgment ourselves? The reason we like to judge others is because it makes us feel superior. Like, we're not as bad as that person. There's a little bit of faulty logic here. And uh, we need to really examine this. We think by judging others we're in a better position and we're going to escape judgment. God doesn't grade on the curve. Paul says, don't think that by pointing on other people's sins that you're off the hook. Anytime we start to judge somebody else, you know how we used to say, When one finger's pointing at you, the other person, there's three fingers pointing back, and we're really, you know, triple whamming ourselves when we're pointing at somebody else. Fourthly, They misinterpret God's blessing on their life. This fourth fourth characteristic of a self righteous person says in verse 4 Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? A self righteous person shows contempt. In the original, what he's saying here is you treat it lightly, you have low regard for it, you take it for granted. Many people presume on God's goodness. They take it for granted. It's the attitude of everything's going great, therefore, God must think I'm good. Everything's going tremendous in my life. Everything's going smooth, therefore, I must be on the in with God. He must think I'm a special person. I'm chosen. A self righteous person thinks he deserves God's blessing, doesn't realize that God's blessing. It's really just God's grace. And if God gave us what we deserved, friends, we would not be here. God gave us really what we deserved. And Paul's saying, we're misinterpreting God's blessing at times. We think that since everything is going great, therefore, I must be without sin, at least without as much sin as that person who's really going through the grinder. But the Bible teaches that God blesses our life Even the life of the unbeliever, not because of merit, but because of his grace. We can't earn it, we don't deserve it. It's all his grace. And just because you may be experiencing God's blessing doesn't mean there's no sin. It's amazing that God knows everything about you and I and about about us, and yet he's patient and loving. How many times has God had a legitimate reason to punish us? Totally legitimate. Lots of times. He's saying that our attitude should be one of knowing that we didn't get what we deserved. We ought to not underestimate God's goodness or take it lightly. If we didn't get what we deserved, what should be our attitude towards the person who does not yet know Jesus Christ? We've been forgiven much. And sometimes we hesitate at extending forgiveness to somebody else. See, this is important because as a church, I believe that we believe that the way you bring people to Christ is not by putting them down and not by telling them what they already know they are, but by holding them up and showing them what they can be and showing them the benefits of Christ and what God wants to do for their lives Showing them the goodness of God, the kindness of God, the patience of God. And the Bible says that leads to repentance. That's incredible. That leads to repentance. Not by preaching, you're going to hell. Now there's times when that probably would be appropriate. But look how patient God is with you. Look how much he loves you. Look how kind he is. When we realize how good God is to us and how little we deserve it, it ought to cause us to fall on our face and say, I'm so grateful, God, for what you've done in my life. You've not given me what I deserve, but you've given me what you want to give me, your kindness and your blessing. A spiritually self-righteous person misinterprets the goodness of God. There's some results of being judgmental. Verse 5 said, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. The result of a self-righteous attitude of, I'm okay and everybody else is not. All we're doing is storing up wrath, and one day the cup of iniquity is going to be full. In life you can store up one of two things. You can store up wrath or treasure in heaven, according to Matthew chapter 6. So the question I need to ask myself, and you need to ask yourself, what are we storing up? Are we storing up the goodness of God? Because judgmentalism makes God upset. Why is it that people, that the people Jesus got the most upset at were the Pharisees, not the adulteress? It's incredible. It's because the Pharisees were judgmental. And they destroyed the dignity of other people. Being judgmental is playing God. Paul says only God has the right to judge. When I judge somebody, I'm playing God. And that's why cursing is wrong for a Christian. When you say, pardon the phrase, God damn you, you're pronouncing a judgment. You're being a judge. Or when you say, damn it, that's a judgment. God says that nobody has the right to judge except God. That's why we're not to swear. To damn a person is to condemn a person. All of this is accumulating, and one day, that cup of iniquity Scripture talks about is going to be full, and watch out. We who think we're spiritually cool are just as guilty as the person who's fallen into all kinds of gross problems like the person and persons we looked at last week. While we're on the subject, it would be important to look at the seven passages of Scripture on when it's wrong to judge. So we're not to judge. Well, when is it wrong to judge? Well, the seven times in Scripture says when it's wrong to judge. Number one, it's wrong to judge when you practice the same sin. It's wrong to judge when you practice the same sin. We read that in Romans chapter 2, verse 1 and 3. Secondly, it's wrong to judge when it blinds you to your own faults. Matthew 7 says, do not judge, it's a command, right from the mouth of Jesus, or you will be judged. In the same way you judge others, you will be judged. The measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Understand here, Jesus is using a little bit of Hebrew humor. I mean, no one's going to have a plank in their eye. So he's using some Hebrew humor here, saying... You know, we're so worried about the speck in somebody else's eye, we're walking around with a big plank in our eye. And the disciples, understanding Hebrew humor, were probably, I don't know, maybe they were rolling in the aisle laughing. Ha, 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 a plank in your eye. Ha, <laughs> ha, As Jesus is trying to show us the absurdity of certain attitudes. So he says, don't do that. Thirdly, In John 7, 24, he says, Stop judging by mere appearance and make a right judgment. It's wrong to judge when we draw conclusions based on outward appearance. When you look at the person and judge them by their hair, their clothes, their style, color of their skin, zits on their face, it doesn't matter. When you judge by outward appearance, it's wrong. Scripture says God looks at the heart But man looks at the outward appearance. When you judge according to the outward appearance, it is wrong. It's wrong to judge when we draw conclusions based on outward appearance. How often have we done that? We saw somebody and immediately we make a judgment call about that person. Fourthly, it's wrong to judge when you condemn somebody else before hearing the facts. I don't know if you've been following the crisis in Houston. But it's amazing whether you agree or disagree with the theology of Joel Osteen. It is amazing how people are misleading wrong facts, judging this pastor and his church for for what may or may not be. It is incredible. What is wrong? And it's it's just not. And you see other things, and I mean, not hearing. The facts. It's wrong to judge when you condemn something out here. In fact, number five, you're wrong when you judge a person's spirituality on the basis of external observances. What you eat, what you drink, what day you worship on. Three common areas of conflict in Christianity diet, drink, and days. Don't get into disputable matters. Don't get hung up on these external things. When you start judging a person's spirituality by external things like diet, one's a vegetarian, another one eats meat, drink, one has the odd glass of wine, one doesn't. Their lifestyle, one goes to movies, another doesn't. What day they worship on, one goes on Saturday, one goes on Sunday. What are these things? Later he says the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, please understand. I believe there are certain prohibitions in Scripture, but to judge people by an external observance is not right. Sometimes we judge people on how often they go to church. The person who comes Sunday morning, they're a good Christian, ah, average Christian. The person who comes Sunday morning and Wednesday to prayer meeting, uh, they're even better Christian, but. The person who comes Sunday morning and the prayer meeting and life group, now there is a stellar Christian. I agree, all those things are important, but to judge somebody who doesn't maybe do that as well, someday they're going to get saved. Hello. On external observer number six, here's. James chapter 4 verse, this, let's go, this one says, it's wrong to judge people when it causes you to slander or speak evil against another person. Slander means to ruin their reputation. James 4, 11, brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. And When you judge the law, you're not keeping it but setting in, in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and to destroy, but you... Who are you to judge your neighbor? When did we become the self-appointed judge of life? Believers serve the Lord, not you. They don't serve you. They serve the Lord. Now we minister and help one another, yes, but they're serving the Lord. When you judge other Christians, you're speaking against them, you're slandering them, and he's saying, that's wrong. Now, there's a fine line we have to face here. Because there are times in Scripture when we're called to be discerning. And I know some of you are thinking about that right now. But there's at, least, and there's at least four times that we're called to judge. But not with this kind of a condemning attitude. But with an evaluative attitude. A reconciliation attitude. And there's a fine line. We're to hate sin and love the sinner. We're to hate wrong, but love the people that are involved in it. Ephesians 4.29 said, Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building each other up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So there's some qualifiers on the way we're supposed to speak to other Christians. We speak in ways to build them up, not build up ourself. We speak in ways according to their needs, not your needs. We speak to edify, to encourage, to strengthen them, not ourself. We should speak positively to other people, not letting any unwholesome talk come out of our mouth. Number seven. Paul says it's wrong when we question other people's motives. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes and he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. Paul says he cares very little if he's judged by people or any human court. He says, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Paul was continually being questioned about his motives. If you do anything in life, you're going to have your motives questioned. Every one of us. There are people in different churches, even churches that Paul had started that questioned his motives. Ego, money, power struggle, empire builder. He was continually having his motives questioned. Paul said, I don't care if you judge me or not because I'm not accountable to you. I'm accountable to God. Then he says, don't judge people's motives. We don't have any right to question or try to figure out other people's motives. We don't even always know our own motives. How are we going to know somebody else's motives? So seven ways we're not to judge. Only God has the right to judge others. Only God has the right. Romans 2, 6 to 16, God will repay each person according to what they've done to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there'll be wrath and anger. There'll be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. If God does not show favoritism, For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness. And their thoughts, sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Then he goes on and he uses this as an opportunity to talk about who does have the right to judge. He says there's only one person who has the right to judge, and that's God. And he tells us when God will judge people and how God will judge them and what we're going to be judged for. So when will God judge people? He says, this will take place, verse 16, on the day, referring to the day of judgment, when God will judge men's secrets. In, back in verse 5, he says, we're storing up wrath for the day of God's judgment. The ultimate day of accounting. The day when all of us are going to give an account for ourselves before God at the throne. That date, my friend, has been set. It's already on God's calendar. It will not be moved. It will not be postponed. It's an awesome thought to think that one day I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to give an account for every word that I've ever said. Every thought that I've ever had. Every action that I've ever taken. I'm going to give an account one day I'll stand before God and I will be accountable to him. The Bible teaches that nobody will be able to say, God, it wasn't fair. Why? Because God's been patient and kind and understanding, verse 6 says. All this time he's been patient for so long. So when will God judge people on that day of judgment? And how will God judge people? God, people, God judges people two ways. God will judge them truthfully and God will judge them impartially. It says, for we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is on truth and God does not show partiality. Hebrews as well says that the word of God is a living and active sharper than any double-edged sword. It, it penetrates. To the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. God will judge according to truth. And that's how he will judge. What will we be judged for? There's three principles of God's judgment. Remember when you were in school, at least I remember when I was in school a long time ago, and you took an exam? At the end of the year, it was so helpful When the teacher told you in advance what was going to be on the test. Okay, here's what's going to be on the test. Now, God does not say there's going to be a final exam at the end of your life and you won't know what's going to be on it. In the second chapter of Romans, God tells us the three things that we're going to be held accountable for at the end of our life. He tells us beforehand what's going to be on the test. We can know right now so we can start preparing for the final exam and none of us like exams but there will be a final exam number one we're going to be judged according to our conduct the way we act the way we lived our deeds God will give every person according to what he's done God's going to judge you according to what you've done not according to what you, not according to what you intended to do but what you've done this verse is a quote from the Old Testament in Psalm 62 and Proverbs 24. It talks about the mercy of God, and God judges us according to our deeds. In our life groups this week they are going to start, we're going to go a little bit deeper into this chapter of Romans, but, and even more how it applies to life. God is not going to judge you for what your husband or your wife or your parents or your kids have done. You're only going to be accountable for yourself. Personal accountability. God will judge us for what we've done. On the other hand, He says we can't blame anybody. We don't accept anybody else's blame. You don't blame anybody else. You can't say if only it was because of its personal accountability. Not a matter of of they did that and they did if they would have only whatever. It's personal accountability. Now, Paul is not saying that you can be saved by self-effort or good works. Some people think if they can do enough good works, they've got it made, or if my good works are a little bit weightier than my bad works, I'm going to make it to heaven. Most of us think we're good enough to get to heaven, but bad enough to be fun. We're good enough, we're going to get there, but... He says, God's going to judge us on our works. But what are the works he's talking about? Going to church? Taking communion? Keeping the Ten Commandments? Tithing? What are the good works that he says get you to heaven? It's a question that Jesus answered in John chapter 6 and verse 25, where some Jewish leaders, if you recall, if anyone's trying to work their way to heaven, it was the Pharisees. And he found, found him on the other side of the lake, and they asked him, Rabbi... When did you get here? And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, you've been looking for me, not because you saw a miraculous sign, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed the seal of approval. Then they asked him this question. What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered this, and he said, you can find it in in John chapter 6, but he said, the work of God is this. To believe in the one he has sent. Look get that. The work of God is this. If you want to do the work of God, believe in the one he has sent. Wow. Believe in the one he has sent. That's the works that get you to heaven. Believe in the one he sent. Well, who is the one he sent? Jesus Christ. You don't get to heaven by doing good Good, perfect, or trying to be good because being good enough to get to God, you'd have to be as good as God. And nobody's perfect. Trusting Christ is our only basis for salvation, is the work of God. Because the guaranteed result of sin is, he says in verse 9, There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. So God's going to judge us us by our conduct, and secondly, God's going to judge us according to our conscience. Verse 12 to verse 15, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not those who hear the law are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who are declared righteous. Indeed, when the Gentiles, who do not have the law do by their very nature the things required by the law, even those that are a law of themselves, since they show the requirements of the law that are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing them, now defending them. So, if you're a Jew, which means you're under the law, then you're going to be judged because you knew the law. If you're a Gentile, and you didn't know anything about the Ten Commandments, you're still going to be judged... Apart from the law, it doesn't make any difference. We're all going to be judged. But Paul is saying that the Jews had God's law in a code, but everybody else has God's law on their conscience. Each of us is going to be responsible for acting on what we knew. Now, I understand, and some of you are thinking, you scholars, well, a person's conscience can be seared. Agreed, scripture says. But they still have a conscience. How do we respond to what we already knew? knew Just because someone knows more than we do doesn't excuse us. Just because the Jews had God's revelation did not excuse the rest of the world. The ultimate issue in our life is not how much do you know, but what did you do with what you do know? Not how much you know. What did you do with what you knew? Verse thirteen says God's not going to judge. As for hearing the law, but according to our responsiveness, for it's not those who hear the law that are righteous, but it's those who obey it. Perhaps many people go to church and they think they've got it made just because they're going to church. They go to church, they sit, they listen, they're interested, but they keep their faith on just a discussion level. They never apply it. They never think of actually putting it into practice on Monday morning. It's kind of an intellectual stimulation or an emotional lift. So we go to church on Sunday. The boys and the young lady, they beat up the music. And we, get, we start feeling really good. Wasn't that great? That was such good music. Some of you say it was loud. But it was good music. And we're all, yeah, oh, yeah. Pastor Preet didn't go too long. It was good. Yeah, Romans is good. Okay, Monday. Time to get back to life. But what are we going to do with what God is saying to us? And I trust we're still practicing and working on hearing God in all these things. And if you've been reading ahead in the book of Romans, saying, Lord, speak to me, help me to understand, yes, it's a great feeling to go to church, but Paul says there's a misconception. You think, Maybe not you, but some people may think, God, I went to church each week. I listened intently. I even took notes. Paul says that it's not the fact that you heard the word, but the fact that you obeyed it that makes the difference. I don't know how many years you've gone to church. I've gone to church a long time. I don't know how many sermons I've preached. And I have to ask myself the same question. I've learned a lot of things but of all the things I've learned, it's one thing to preach it to a congregation. It's another thing to be honest and say, okay, Roy, have you applied it in your life? You're asking other people to apply it in their life, but are you applying it in your life? Because one day, man, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of words I've spoken that I'm going to be held accountable before God. Yikes. We need to respond. We need to, application of the Word of God is really the bottom line. And so on Sundays, and as we were in the Hearing God series and previous messages, and now we're in Romans, we want to give ways to put the Word into your life. If I only have so many minutes, and there are time the clocks ticking, if I only have so many minutes to speak, then the most important thing for us as whoever preaches here, the most important thing for us to give you is, what am I going to do about it? Somebody once said, you should ask yourself the question after you've prepared a sermon and the, should answer this statement, so what? So you preached all that now, so what? What do we do to take that and apply it in our life? How can you apply this scripture this week? I said, we're going to go further into our life groups, hopefully, and discuss it as well. But, I mean, how can you love your neighbor as yourself at work? How can you love your neighbor as yourself at home? How can you love your neighbor as yourself with your relatives? God says it doesn't matter how much you hear the word of God, but what matters is, do we put it into practice? And so, we can look in the book of James. James says the same thing as the Apostle Paul. And so... We're judged for three things, our conduct, our conscience, and thirdly, we're going to be judged for our character. Verse 16, this will take place when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. When Paul is talking here about the word secrets, he's literally talking about people's motives. We're not to judge people's motives, but God can, because he sees inside of us. He knows what we're really like. Just like in the previous verse, if you don't know the law, it's written on your conscience. It doesn't matter what your religious background is. If you don't have a Bible, you've still got a conscience. People have a conscience. They generally know the difference between wrong and right. And they may not choose to do the right thing, but they generally know. And once, as they keep doing the wrong thing, obviously then it becomes that, the pattern of life. But people do have a conscience. In verse 16 it says, God can look at your motives He sees inside of you, that's what your character is. Why you do what you do. It's interesting that people say, reputation is what you are to other people. Character is what you are in the dark. Character is what you are when you're all alone. God will judge men's secrets. 1 Corinthians 4, five says, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. There's a lot of unbelievers who look like Christians on the outside. You ever noticed? There's some unbelievers who look fantastic on the outside. I mean, they're moral. They're upright. They don't drink. They don't smoke. They don't curse. They don't chew. They don't run with girls that do. I mean, they're just... Morally upright. They're good citizens. They serve in the community. A lot of unbelievers look like Christians outwardly. But there's a lot of Christians who look like unbelievers outwardly. Paul is saying in this chapter, you thought you got away in chapter 1 because you weren't involved in gross sin. The moral person has just as many things to be worried about as the immoral person. Whoa! Paul says there's one more group of people who probably think, I'm not just a moral person, I'm religious. And he uses the Jews as an example because that's what Paul was. He says these people are the people who are trusting religion to save them. That's the hardest group to reach is the religious. Jesus found it so. So you've got the rebellious person, you've got the respectable person, then you've got the religious person. Because the religious person is trying to work his way to heaven and he's trusting his religion to save him. Paul points out, you can be religious and lost. You can be a church member and be headed for damnation. See, religion is just man's best attempt to get to God. Man's attempt to get to God. The Bible compares religion with a relationship and we all know, we we said it, it's not about religion. It's all relationship with Jesus Christ, Amen. It's not religion. But in the last part of chapter 2, Paul deals specifically with the Jewish religion because he was a Jew. And the principles apply to anybody who thinks his religion can save him. So you could substitute the words church member, and it would apply where it says Jew. You could substitute your denominational background, whatever. Friends, those things will not save you. It'll not get you right with God. Here's quickly eight characteristics of a religious person. And then the test. Romans two seventeen. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you're instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others... Do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You abhor abhor idols, do you rob temples? You will boast in the law. Do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Then he goes into circumcision and how, verse 28, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. A person is a Jew who is one inwardly. Circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. The characteristic of a religious person, number one, they depend on a label. They depend on a label. Paul says, if you call or name or claim yourself as a Jew, you think you're going to make it to heaven. The Jews thought... That their name was an instant passport to heaven. I'm a Jew. Abraham, my father. I'm in. I'm cool. Everything is good. Regardless of what they did, if I'm a Jew, I'm gonna make it pride of tradition. The Jews, if anybody, love to depend on the label. If you ask them, are you right with God? Of course, I'm a Jew. And someone asks you, Are you right with God? Of course. I'm a Christian. I live in a Christian nation. Hello? I go to church every Sunday. Yes, of course, everything's cool. I'm Presbyterian. I'm Baptist. I used to be Baptist. I'm Pentecostal. I'm Catholic. Or my parents were Christians. Or my grandparents were missionaries. Or my uncle's a pastor. If you can become a Christian by osmosis, I don't think so. Kind of soaks in. A heritage? No, it doesn't soak in. Of course I'm a Christian. I go to church. I attend such and such a church. As if the label is going to make us an instant Christian. There's lots of labels. I'm a fundamentalist. I'm a dispensationalist. I'm a charismatic. I'm full gospel. Going to church will make you a Christian about as much as going to a chicken house is going to make you a chicken. Or going into a phone booth is going to make you a phone. Or going to a lion's cup is going to make you a lion. It isn't membership. It isn't the label that makes you a believer. But the first characteristic we see that they call themselves something. Secondly, they rely on rules and regulations. This is a big one, rules and regulations. Paul says you rely on the law. He's talking about the first five books of the Old Testament, commonly known as the Pentateuch. Penta, meaning five. These are the first five books written by Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The Jews call those five books the Torah. The fact is the law never saved anybody. Galatians teaches that. That is not its purpose. The Jews felt that simply because they had the law given to their nation, that made them okay. They possessed instant salvation whether they obeyed it or not. Simply because they possessed these books and perhaps they even memorized them. John 5.39, Jesus, speaking to Pharisees, said, You diligently search the Scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the Scriptures that testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Thirdly, they think that they have special status with God. Paul said, You call yourself a Jew, you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God. Sometimes the most prideful people in the world, are religious people. The Jews felt they had an inside track with God. God likes us, doesn't like anybody else, He just likes us. It's like, we're the church. You've heard some organize it, we're the church. Hello? Some of you think they got special status with God. Fourthly, they claim to have a pipeline to God. We know His will. They've got this pipeline. Because the Jews had God's word. They knew his will. The all-important word is if. If you know his will. And when Paul said that, he was being sarcastic. He's setting them up. Paul says, you guys think you've got it together? You've got the label. You've got the name. You've got the pipeline to God. He's setting them up for a fall. He's saying it's not enough to know God's will. You've got to do it. Do it. Number five, they maintained a high moral standard. And there's nothing wrong with a high moral standard. It's good. We ought to maintain a high moral standard. We ought to have a code of ethics. Approve what is superior. We ought to go for the best in life and have a high standard of integrity. But moral integrity will not get us to heaven. Paul says values and priorities are good, but they're not good enough to get us to heaven. The Jews and a lot of religious people felt like they were superior because of their moral ethics. I don't need to go to church. I'm better than so-and-so. As if God's going to grade on the curve. Oh, you'd never catch me doing that. I don't do those kind of things. The Jews and religious people often have a high moral standard. Why? Because you were instructed by the law. They've been reading God's Word, and God's Word teaches that we're people of integrity. We're to be ethical. Many of the Jews have the first five books memorized. That Paul is systematically tearing down every prop that religious people think will get them a passport into heaven. They think, oh, I'm not like that immoral person in chapter one. I'm better than the moral person in chapter two who doesn't know God but lives a clean life. I'm a religious person. I do works. I try to please God by what I do. I read the Bible. I'm instructed by the law. All of those privileges were things the Jews took pride in. Number six. The sixth characteristic of a religious persons is they have a condescending attitude towards others. They think they've got it when nobody else has it. Like Paul said, you people thought you said, we're the teachers, we're the guide, we're the way. Everybody else is blind and foolish in the dark. Everybody else is just stupid. You ever known anybody who's a religious snob? I mean, they're just, you know, like, listen to me, world, I've got the answer for everything. A religious' that funny? oh a religious know it all wants to show you how much Bible they got under their belt it 's characteristic of a religious person. they use the Bible as a hammer to beat on your head. they take great pride in correcting you they 've always got a verse for you right down to the reference. It gives them this ego boast it 's one of the reasons Jesus came to earth. the Bible says. He came to break down the barrier because the message was not getting out. Now God has taken another group to share the message to the world, the church. God has chosen the church to take the message to the world, to live the message to our world and society. That's why Jesus came to earth, to break down the barrier. So people have this condescending attitude. These know-it-alls who go out and beat up on people and then try to complain about being persecuted. Suffering for Jesus because they're being obnoxious. Don't blame it on Jesus. No matter what you're... I know there's genuine persecution. Please understand me. I know that. No matter what you're doing, if you're going to be obnoxious, people are going to be upset. Hello? You get upset when people are obnoxious with you. If your faith makes you feel superior to others and put them down, then you're devoted to a religion, not a relationship. Billy Graham said, Evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. I'm not better than anybody else. When we go to share the gospel, it's not because we're superior or more perfect. We're not. It's like if I had the cure for cancer, I'd share it. Even if I had cancer myself, I'd share it. If I saw somebody's house burning and they were trapped inside, I'd do everything to get them out. Wouldn't you stand outside and say, see, if you'd have only accepted. Don't be obnoxious. Paul said, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You preach this. One of the characteristics of religious people is that they don't always practice what they preach. They don't practice what they preach. And there's more to be said about that and When your walk doesn't match your talk, your conduct doesn't match your claims, your behavior doesn't match your belief, you say one thing and do something else. And Isaiah talks a lot about that. Ezekiel talks about it. But the result of religion in the world is this. Paul said in verse 24, as it is written, Jesus' name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Whoa, whoa, what an indictment. Paul isn't writing the easiest passage here. He's saying, because of your religion, non-religious people are turned off. Because of your piousness, unbelievers reject God. The unchurched people don't have hang-ups with God. They have hang-ups with Christians. They don't have hang-ups with the Lord. They have hang-ups with the church and what they perceive. They have a problem with some believers who act superior, who pretend to be perfect, who brag about the relationship to God, who treat other people in this condescending manner. The biggest problem is not, do you believe in God? Well, oh, yes. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Do you believe in the Bible? Yes. How come you're not in church? I got burned a few years back. I went to church and this happened. And We know people like that all over, right? You ask them why you don't go to church. Well, I went to church and they ripped me off. They did this. And Paul is bringing this out here. This was the ultimate put down to the Jews. To the Jews, the worst sin is a Jew who would commit blasphemy. That's the worst sin. And blasphemy is bringing shame on the name of God. And Paul says, because of the way you act, unbelievers are turned off. Unbelievers don't want to have anything to do with the church. He says, you claim to be teachers, instructors, guides for everybody, but you're actually turning people away. How many times have you met someone who said, if being a Christian means being like that person, forget it. If that's how a Christian acts, I don't want to do it. Do super pious people turn you off? You get around them and make, they make you feel inferior, like, you're, like you know Nothing? Bible is saying to be careful about our attitude toward non-Christian people who don't know Jesus. Always remember this. It's not our duty to make people religious. It's not our duty to make people religious. And secondly, never expect an unbeliever to act like a believer until he is one. Don't expect that. We accept people where they are and then they make a commitment to Christ, and Christ gives them the power to make the change you can 't change until you have Christ in your life they can 't change until they have Christ in their life and The eighth characteristic of a religious person is they rely on rituals and here 's where we we'll close rituals paul makes he talks about circumcision, the ritual of circumcision and uh, He's talking about the difference between outward practice and an inward attitude. Originally, circumcision was meant to be an expression of faith. It symbolized commitment to God. They were circumcised because they had a covenant commitment to God. It was like the wedding ring of Judaism, like baptism to the believer. This wedding ring is a reminder of a vow, and it says, I belong to one woman. I'm committed to her for life, but a ring is worth as much as the vow behind it. It's worthless if there's no commitment behind it. Without commitment, the ring is worthless and useless. Circumcision was the symbol of a Jew's commitment to God. And Paul says the outward symbol means nothing if there's not an inward commitment. It means nothing. We can substitute any word you want for the word circumcision and get the same idea. You can substitute the word baptism. It means nothing if there's no heart commitment. Lord's Supper, church member... Holy Communion, Confirmation. doesn't matter the ritual. All these things are useless symbols if there's no heart commitment behind it. And a religious person tends to rely on rituals that he can point to. Rituals without reality is worthless. Paul is saying we don't need any more religious people. Religion has never saved anybody, no matter what the religion, Catholic, Protestant, Jew, Hindu, Mormon. Religion has never saved anybody. So Paul points to the things the Jews were trusting in. You can read it there. And today we see the very same thing religious people are trusting in. Paul's simply trying to show our need for God, our need for salvation, our need for grace. And he's doing a good job of it. He's showing us that we've all blown it. And on judgment day, nobody's going to be able to say, my conduct was sinless. My conscience is perfectly clear. My character is spotless. That's depressing to think that the final exam is coming... And I'm not going to pass. I'm going to fail. Remember sometimes in school, you had a teacher that if you did a certain thing, you could skip the final? They called it, when I went to school, recommendations. If your grades were a certain point, you didn't have to write the final. Good news. I want to tell you a way to skip the final. To escape, you might say, the final. A way to bypass all this judgment. You won't have to go through it. Revelation 20 talks about it. We have an advanced picture of what it's going to be like on the day of judgment. And verse 12 is not on the screen, but it says this. And I saw the dead, great and small. I saw them standing before the throne. The books were open. And notice now the plural, the books. Another book was open, which was the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that was in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead. People came back to life for the judgment. And each person was judged according to what he's done. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's how the judgment day is going to be. That's the final exam. How do you get past the final exam? Make sure your name's in the book of life. Make sure it's written. John 3, 16, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I get to skip the final because my name's in the book. Your name in the book? Make sure your name's in the book. If you don't accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, he will someday be your judge. I urge you to settle the issue today. Settle the issue today. To apply this, we'll discuss it further this week in Life Group, but What have you been trusting in to get you to heaven? Raised in a Christian home? Great. But just like each person has to make their own decision to be married, each person has to make their own decision to be a believer. You can't get married for somebody else. You can't be a believer for somebody else. I'm sorry, you can't be baptized for somebody else. It's all personal. What have you been trusting in? A background, a heritage, membership somewhere, baptism? Paul goes through that. Those of you who have been believers, maybe for some time, is it possible that somebody in your life has been turned off to becoming a Christian because of your lifestyle? Has it been inconsistent with what you believe? Peter says, live in such a way that it silences the critics. Would you join me in praying today and say, Lord, help me to be intensely spiritual, yet perfectly natural? I want to be religious. I don't want to be rebellious. I don't want to be disrespectful. I just want to be a follower of Jesus. We you bow your heads and say, Father, I thank you for your word and thank you for the patience of your people as we've gone through a lot of things. And Father, there's perhaps some things that have touched us on the surface. Other things have touched us deeply. And Perhaps your Holy Spirit is highlighting some things in our life that we need to pay attention to. Are we trusting in the wrong thing? Have we completely committed our life to Jesus Christ? Have we invited Christ into our life and asked him to forgive us of our sin? Repented of our sin and turned away from it is our name written in the land book of life. What's the Holy Spirit asking of you today? Are there areas of religiosity that has gripped your life? Are there ways that you look at people that you've been judging them and you're not the judge and you've excused it in so many different ways? We all do that. Is God speaking to you on something and is he wanting your response this morning? It's a personal matter here this, between you and the Lord. Holy Spirit, I pray that as you're speaking to our hearts this morning, each one of us here, that we'll respond to you and respond appropriately, that not just receiving more information, more knowledge, but what is it you want us to do about it? You came to bring life change. You've empowered your church to be a witness. To point others to the majesty and grace and goodness and mercy of our Lord, that we might bring them to repentance. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your people here this morning. Thank you for their response to you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. God, ask the musician to come quickly.